Good afternoon, church. Would you guys please stand up with me as we read the word of God? Today we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, and it reads, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter, this matter, because of the Lord is the, an avenger in all these things. So as we told you before, beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever dis disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you this afternoon. In the event that you didn't catch, Miguel, we're gonna find ourselves in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. We're gonna be looking at verses three through eight. And so as you open or load your Bible, uh, I really just have two things for you. The first one is that if you are new, we'd love to connect with you. We'd love the opportunity to pray for you. In the Connect desk, we have these Connect cards. Let me encourage you to fill one out, and someone in our staff team will get with you uh, within the next day or so. In addition to that, uh, I just want to encourage you on what we call community groups. For us here at Storehouse, community is the lifeblood of our church, and community uh, is the primary, community groups, I'm sorry, are the primary avenues for discipleship and care in our church. And so if you are not in one, let me encourage you to join one. Also at the Connect Desk, we have more information on those groups. They don't just meet in McAllen, but they meet in the surrounding cities. So hopefully we can find something near you. Uh, other than that, that's all I have. I'd love to just dig into our time. As we've been examining a variety of heart idols over the last couple of weeks and in this series, it would be difficult to ignore one in particular because of how pervasive, influential, and normative it is today. And this is the idol of sex. And sex is going to be this giant category referring to everything from sexuality, sexual identity, sexual expression. And there are a few things in light of this that are weighing on my heart this afternoon. And I just want to be honest with you because these are burdens that I have. And I'm sure as we move into our time, they will become your burdens as well. First, uh, there's no way that I'm going to be able to tackle this idol in its entirety in 40 minutes. I'm just not going to be able to do that, but I want to be faithful to you in the text Second, there are going to be things in the Word of God that we need to hear. And they're going to be convicting, they're going to be weighty, they're going to be burdensome, um, and there's a tension that is associated with that. And that tension is that when it comes to the context of who the church is, there's brokenness in this room. There's brokenness as a result of culture, the idol itself, and the chaos of sexuality. So I want to to just sit in that tension, but also do my very best to pastor you as we walk through this. And so here's what I do want to do uh, as we go into this. The first thing is I want to unapologetically uphold the teaching of God's Word. That's number one. The second thing is that my hope, my prayer, is that the Holy Spirit would bring forth both comfort and conviction to us. 
So to that end, now that you know what we're talking about, to that end, here are a few reasons as to why this is such an important idol and issue for us to tackle in our church and as a church. None of these are on the screen. I'm just going to give you a couple of, I suppose you can call them statistics, and I just want us to kind of sit in this. And again, this is going to this is going to breed a little bit of tension, maybe a little bit of discomfort. And so um, here we go. The first one is in the context of pornography. There are more than 28,000 users watching pornography every second of every single day. More than $3,000 are spent on pornography every single second. In the context of marriage, 68% of divorce cases involved one party meeting someone over the internet. 56% of cases involved one party having, quote, an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 70% of wives of sex addicts could be diagnosed with PTSD. Concerning abortion, 64%, according to Heartbeat International, 64% of abortions were reported as a result of pressure and threats, including everything from violence and murder, which is the leading cause of death among pregnant women. The report also cited that suicide rates are six times higher in women who have an abortion versus those giving birth. Concerning living together, or cohabitation, however you want to call it. More than 50% of Americans have lived with someone before marriage. This is between the ages of 15 to 44. Uh, according to Barna Group, more than 70% of Americans today will uh, move in together before they're married, and here are their top three reasons. To test compatibility, so now moving in is kind of like riding a bike, so to test compatibility, financial convenience, and to spend more time together. They reported of those who moved in together, in the context of testing for compatibility, here's what they found. For men, higher levels of depressive symptoms, generalized anxiety symptoms, difficulty depending on others, and anxiety about abandonment were significantly associated with scores on testing compatibility. In addition to that, greater physical aggression and lower levels of dedication were associated with testing the relationship. For women, greater abandonment anxiety was significantly associated with higher testing scores. Idolatry of sex or sexuality has sadly, tragically normalized and infected our way of thinking, often as a result of our own carelessness. It is not simply the world's problem. And I understand that as we unpack our text, there will be people who believe that us as Christians, that our view on sex is not only foreign, but it is outdated, it is backward, and it is stupid. However, I want to just let you know that this sermon isn't for the world, that is, those who do not know Jesus. This sermon, rather, is for the church. And here's what I want us to embrace. Here's what I want us to do a little bit of wrestling with. This is your main idea, and that is that sexuality is not simply a matter of morality, but holiness. Sexuality is not simply a matter of morality, 
but holiness. So let me pray, and we'll consider what God has for us in 1 Thessalonians 4. Oh, Lord of grace, would you meet us where we are this afternoon? Would you meet us with comfort and conviction? God, we ask that you give us comfort so that we are reminded of who we are in Jesus because of Jesus. May you give us conviction so that we would turn our eyes back to you. Therefore, God, would you give us believing hearts? Would you give us honest minds? Would you give us listening ears? God, would you give us the wisdom to navigate the contours of our heart so that we would turn away from idols and pursue you in holiness? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll be brief about the context of 1 Thessalonians because in two weeks, we're actually going to be starting a series in 1 Thessalonians. So I don't want to give too much away, but I'll give you kind of a snapshot of what's going on. When it comes to the Thessalonians, they were not outside, unaware, or unassociated with Greco-Roman culture. Uh, And what that means is that the city of Thessalonica was pretty saturated with a very liberal view of sexuality. They embraced being a sexually freeing people. And so when you consider the way our culture is today, uh, we could compare it to that of Thessalonica. In addition to that, as we'll learn in a couple of weeks, the Apostle Paul and his uh, friends make their way to Thessalonica and ultimately plant a church where they preach the gospel, they share the gospel among the Thessalonians, and many of those Thessalonians come to faith in Christ We learn later that Paul had to flee the city, and shortly thereafter, he receives word uh, about how the Thessalonians are doing. And so the letter of 1 Thessalonians is Paul responding to what he's heard about them. I don't think this is on the screen, but if you have your Bibles open, this is 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9, and here's what Paul says. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul is writing to them because he's heard of their faith and the impact that their faith has had with one another, their city, and the neighboring cities. Their faith and their pursuit of holiness has actually captivated those who do not know Jesus. And so here, as they turn from idols, Paul begins to exhort them uh, on concerns with sexual immorality. And he does this because he knows that they are not unaware of the culture. He does this because he's aware of their personal experiences and their own temptations. And so now, as Paul begins to exhort the Thessalonians on sexual morality, we need to know that it's not simply just because of the culture surrounding them. Like, in other words, he's not just writing to them because of what's happening outside the walls of the church, but because Paul is aware of sexual morality, he is aware that sexuality can and does make its way into the church. And so as much as we would agree that there are various cultural acceptances of sexuality outside of the church, the bigger concern is that these cultural norms 
have also, to one degree or another, become acceptable in the church. And so I think it's important to consider at least three ways in which cultural norms have infected or made their way into the church. And I'll be brief. The first one is that sex is consensual. And here's what I mean. In many ways, we have replaced conviction for consent. In other words, uh, as long as both individuals agree that it's totally permissible because this is just the way we love one another and we're going to express it in this manner, we go ahead and move forward. And so when this takes place in the church, it not only, it, it, it shows us how much, not only we have strayed, but how seared our consciences have become. So we have replaced once more, we have replaced uh, conviction, virtue with consent. And the second way is that we, the church, might even argue, well, sex is a private matter. And oftentimes in the church, we say it this way, to justify sexual sin or perversion by claiming, hey, this is a personal and private matter. But we will see in this text that your privacy, your secret sexual gratification affects your community. Finally, One of the last ways in which this has kind of come into the church is by embracing that sex is expressive. That is, it's not only a part of the way we were designed, but this is the way in which we best love one another physically. This is how we are going to express our love for one another. Now, to a degree, there is truth to that in its appropriate context between one man and one woman in marriage. But the idea here is not so much that as much as it is to act, to celebrate, and to champion impulse. When it comes to uh, The Matrix, I don't know if you've ever watched it, right? There was this one dude, this one character in the first one. His name was Mouse. And Mouse tells Neo this, to deny our own impulses is to deny the very thing that makes us human. that's, That's the idea of sex being expressive, right? See, cultural acceptances of of sex and sexuality have become normative in the church. But they are far from the pursuit of holiness. And so I want you to know that those three are actually very worldly, ungodly ways of thinking about sex. And instead, we want to pursue holiness. So now, let's consider the text beginning in verse 3. Here's what Paul says. For this is the will of God... Your sanctification. Paul begins this section by answering a question that we all, to one degree or another, and at some point in our lives, ask. What is God's will for my life? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. I'm sure you have. You probably asked it this morning. What is God's will for my life? In his goodness and in his grace, he he answers us through Paul, and he says, your sanctification. That is God's will for your life, your sanctification. Sanctification is simply a process. It is the process of you and I responding to the work of God in us. See, as we walk with the Lord, as we put death or as we put sin to death, as we grow in our love and our understanding of who God is, as we incline ourselves to the Holy Spirit, we become more like Jesus. 
Sanctification is a lifelong process. Therefore, when you ask, well, what is God's will for my life? His will is for you to conform to the image of Jesus daily. The beauty of a text like this is that it shows us one big thing, and that is that God's will is always parallel to God's word. So if you're curious about God's will for you, my question would then be, well, where do you find yourself in God's word? You see both that are parallel. Nevertheless, as a result of the Holy Spirit at work in us, as a result of us responding to the Spirit, here's where it gets a little heavy. Paul will now give us three exhortations. And the first one is based on our conduct. Back to verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The word abstain doesn't simply mean to stop. It means to resist, to restrain, to enact self-control. And when he uses this phrase of sexual immorality, the, the Greek word for this little phrase is the word porneia. And porneia is really this uh, junk drawer for sexual sin. You put all sexual sin into this drawer. And this involves everything from sex outside of marriage, that's adultery. Sex before marriage, right? What we talked about earlier. Sex in addition to marriage, bringing people that is not your spouse into the bedroom. Pornography, homosexuality, fornication, all of these things, all of these sexual sins fall into this giant category that is called porneia. That lends us to a question. And the question is, why do the New Testament writers emphasize sexual immorality so much, or fleeing sexual immorality so much? If you've read through the New Testament, something like 1 Thessalonians is just a piece of that, right? He tells the Corinthians, flee sexual immorality. He tells the Galatians, right, that do not pursue the, the desires of the flesh. Here are two reasons. The first one is sexual sin has a weightier impact on us at a deeper level than other sins. While all sin is equally wrong and while it does bring guilt and conviction, sexual sin deeply affects us spiritually and affects the way in which we interact with other people. That's one. The second reason is because Sexuality, especially in the days of the New Testament writers, sexuality was absolutely normalized. And so they're constantly pushing back against it for the purpose of the church pursuing holiness so that people would come to know Jesus. But nevertheless, it was so normalized in their day, that's why they're constantly pushing against it, just like we see today in ours. And so when Paul tells them that the will of God is, is their sanctification, to pursue sanctification is to pursue holiness, which means that we as Christians, we as the church, have been set apart. You see, sex is not simply a gift from God. It's not simply designed by God. It's a reflection of his covenant with his bride. It is so much more than physical intimacy. 
Additionally, when it comes to the great emphasis of sexual morality, you and I know the temptations that we face, especially when it's normal to our culture, especially when that normality makes its way into the church. And so often, just like to the Corinthians, when Paul writes, flee sexual immorality, and when you hear Jesus in Matthew 5 say, hey, if your eye causes you to stumble, chop, take it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, chop it off. The idea here is do whatever it takes to flee from sexual sin. Around you, it's going to be normative, and it's going to be influential, and it's going to try to creep in. Your job is to flee, to run, do whatever it takes. And because it's an idol, questions like, who is it that you're trying to please come up? What is it that you're searching for that keeps you from fleeing sexual morality? So the first thing Paul addresses is conduct. And it's an exhortation. In other words, it's kind of a hard word. Abstain from sexual immorality. Next, Paul moves from conduct to a layer that's deeper our character. Our character can be defined as who we are and what we're counted on to do. This is verses 4 and 5. Paul says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. We're going to pause right there. Did you catch that? Paul's talking about self-control. When it comes to sanctification, sanctification is partnership with God. In other words, we are responding to God's work in us. And did you notice what he said about self-control then? Read it one more time. Each of you know how to control his own body. Here's what Paul is saying. You are responsible for your own self-control. You can't blame anyone else for your lack of self-control. In fact, to point the finger would be arrogant and cowardice. When it comes to holiness and honor, Paul is saying, hey, your self-control is the fruit of our response to God's work in us. Your self-control means that the holiness of God is a greater value for you than the promise of temporary pleasure. And so Paul adds, this is verse 5, he says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. In other words, those who do not know God, they do not resist or protect their sexual desires. They give in to them. They believe that responding or by responding to their impulses, that's what's going to give them worth, that's what's going to give them meaning, that's what's going to make them truly human. But sex is a gift meant to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in marriage, but it is not the epitome of happiness. Rather, it's a reflection of holiness, something that God has set apart. Therefore, by having self-control, we protect ourselves and others from emotional and spiritual harm that so many people have experienced through sexual morality. So we went from conduct, abstain from this, 
We went to character, who you are. You are responsible for your self-control. And we moved to his final exhortation in verse 6, and that is community. And this is the effects that mm, sexual sin has on community. As I mentioned earlier, there is this lie that sometimes we embrace that says sex is a private matter or sexuality is a private matter, but in reality, it has a communal effect. So here we go. Verse 6, Paul writes, that no one transgress, so that word transgress is that we sin against one another, that no one transgress and wrong his brother, brother in this matter, this matter being sexual immorality. Brother is a word that's referring to all Christians in this context. <clears throat> And so here's, what ultimately, here's ultimately what Paul is saying. If you think your secret sexual gratification is private, it's not. It's not. It actually has effects on the community, on the church body on the trust that we have with one another as we pursue and point one another to pursue holiness. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, the kinds of people I've spoken to in our church. In our church, we've had single moms who are and have been pursuing chastity, saying no to sexual temptation, and walking in obedience as they seek for help, uh, as they seek help from other sisters in the church. Met with them. We have students who are getting ripped up from their peers at school because they are choosing not to have sex like their peers are doing, not to look at porn like their peers are doing, and they're trying hard to pursue holiness and obedience. We have men and women who struggle with same-sex attraction while everyone outside of the church is pressuring them to give in because when you give in, then you will find true happiness. We have single men and women in our church who hold tightly to God's word, are in community with one another, keep their heels on their convictions based on what God has revealed to them, even though they are afforded so many different sexual opportunities and then are ridiculed for rejecting them. We have marriages that are, man, moving forward toward the Lord, but, man, there have been these rocky moments because of sexual sin or sexual temptation and hardship enters the family, and they're trying to faithfully pursue the Lord. Those are the individuals that are in our church. And then there's some of you that when you indulge and pursue and walk in sin and secret gratification and you think it's private, you are actually betraying them. You sin against the trust we have in community to pursue holiness. I want you to think about those people in our church. And so Paul writes, because the Lord is an avenger. 
This isn't saying that God is out to hunt you down like Batman does to bad guys in the alleys of, of, of Gotham. What Paul is saying is sexual sin has consequences. Sexual sin has consequences. When we succumb, submit, pursue, walk in, indulge in sexual sin, it has consequences. And those consequences are never private. The list of exhortations from God through Paul, by way of summary, include conduct, character, and community. And these are heavy exhortations. And that's okay. Sometimes we need to hear a very honest, raw, real, frank word from the Lord. And even as you hear this, you may think that this is overwhelming and that you need to flee and that you need to do something else or you just need to keep doing your best. That it's one thing, for instance, for me or a pastor or anyone else to teach on this from up here, but let let me just tell you I've been on the side where I've met with many in our church who have been affected by sexual sin. And so while many will look at this and be like, well, that's a really harsh word, that's a really strict word, your perspective on this changes when you're sitting across from someone who's been affected by sexual sin. Your perspective changes when someone in your church has been affected by sexual sin from someone else in that same church. In addition to that, it's not just the the weightiness of that. It's also sitting across from individuals who have just experienced incredible hardships. And just as much as I've sat on the side of seeing individuals affected by sexual sin, I've also sat with people who were broken but restored by the grace of God as they walk in obedience with the Lord. And as they walk in obedience with the Lord, one thing, here's what I've seen, here's the fruit of that. As they pursue holiness, it is captivating. The outside world that is longing to quench desires is curious. Holiness is captivating. And that's exactly what Paul is writing to the Thessalonians on. You turned from idols and turned to the one true living God. And people are noticing. People want that. And it's not just in Thessalonica. People in Macedonia are hearing. It's like, it's not just in McAllen. People in Mission and in Donna are hearing about it. It goes beyond the church because holiness is captivating. Our sanctification, us pursuing holiness, isn't for the sake of being better than other people. It is for the sole reason that we've been set apart by God for himself. And that is captivating to a watching world. 
The beauty of God's heart in this is that if we were to end the sermon there, it would be very, very, very weighty. But he doesn't leave us there. In addition to these exhortations in verses 7 and 8, God through Paul gives us encouragements. And the first encouragement is holiness. Verse 7, for God has not called us, let's say that one more time, look at the text, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Did you catch that? God has called you to himself. You, Christian, belong to God. God has made a way for you to know him through Jesus who lived a sinless life and died a death on your behalf to purchase you out of your former life and make you his. Izzy read off of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 today uh, and the, the, the opening of 1 Peter 1 says, as obedient children. Sometimes we're just like hooked on the word obedient, but we miss the children part. You belong to God. You are a son or a daughter to the Father because of Jesus' work for you and the Spirit in you. You belong to to him. See, that longing that you have to be different and sometimes to be someone else, the longing that tells you something isn't right, the longing that you have after, after experiencing the conviction of sin is actually a longing for holiness. And you can only experience that through the Spirit's work in you. That's great news. Sometimes I've heard individuals say, man, that's just so convicting. Yes, that's the Spirit doing what he does in you. That is great and wonderful news. So the first gift is that you have been set apart. You belong to God because of Jesus. And as a result of that, the second gift is the Holy Spirit. That is that God resides in you, Christian. He is not absent. He is not silent, but dwelling in you. And the work that he has begun, he will see it through completely. And so what does this mean? This means that not only do you have the power to say no to sin, not only do you have the power to resist temptation, but you have the power to turn and say yes to Jesus. God has not left us to ourselves. Rather, by his grace, he has given us gifts so that we can pursue holiness, to communicate to the world that there's something, someone better than what that world has to offer. The gifts of God for you, Christian, are not only comforting, but they're transformative. And so as we begin to wrap it up, I know this kind of text is really weighty. I know many of you might even be wondering, well, then how do we respond? And I really do appreciate that about our church. Very practical, right? Sometimes like, just tell me what to do. Yeah, well, hold on, guy, okay? Let's, let's, talk, let's talk about who you are in Christ first. But man, tell me what to do. Well, here it is. I want to offer you three ways to respond this afternoon. And then I'm going to give you one final encouragement. Here's the first way. 
It's not on the screen, so you just get to sit in these. The first way is rejoice. Rejoice. The Lord has not forsaken you. The Lord has not left you to yourself. Rejoice because you belong to God. Rejoice because you are not strong enough to detach yourself from him if you belong to him. Rejoice. Secondly, repent. A text like this leads you to repentance. Therefore, some of you may need to repent of sexual sin. Maybe you need to go have a conversation with someone and repent to them. Repent. Number three, receive. There are some of you that have been on the other side, the other end of sexual sin where people have sinned against you. I'm so sorry. And I want you to receive a number of things. The first thing I want you to receive is the grace of God toward your comfort. That's what I want you to receive. The grace of God. I want you to receive counseling or a conversation if you feel that you need it because then there are areas that maybe haven't healed from your experience. I want you to know that we're available. I'm available to sit with you. We've got leaders in the church that are available to sit with you. I want you to receive community where brothers and sisters can come alongside you to encourage you and to protect you. I want you to receive the promises of God and that he makes all things new. He is in the business of restoration. And I know that there are many of you who would say that I've just done too much. I've jacked it all up. Why would God accept me now? Why would he help me? Why would he even want to embrace me? I've simply screwed it up too many times. There's a Puritan, I don't know if any of you like to read the Puritans, his name is Richard Sibbs. Here's what he says about you if you find yourself in that, that category. Here's what he says. None are fitter for comfort than those that think themselves furthest off. A holy despair in ourselves is the ground of true hope. As we transition in a moment to the Lord's table, I want you to remember that this is an invitation. Repentance particularly is an invitation for you to come to the Lord Jesus. Broken but repentant. Broken but beautifully restored. Broken but belonging to God because of Jesus. I want you to receive the bread and the cup so that you would be given a tangible reminder of God's grace for you. Church, let us remember, sexuality is not simply about morality, but holiness. Let's pray. Lord, a text like this, if, if we're honest, could be, it could be really heavy.
And sometimes we might skim through it really quickly. And we'll skim through it really quickly for a number of reasons. Things that we don't want to address, things that we don't want to discuss, things that we don't even want to remember. And Lord, we're just being, we're just being honest. Therefore, Lord, as we bring this honesty before you, may we also remember the honesty of your work. And that is that you call us sons and daughters because we have been reconciled to you through Jesus. We have been approved by you because of Jesus. So give us grace. Give us the grace to find comfort. Give us grace so that we would find healing. Give us grace so that we would grieve sin. Give us grace so that we would repent of sin. Lord, often our hearts are are fickle and they try to find approval elsewhere, even if we're Christians. But here and now, Holy Spirit, would you draw us closer to the truth of your word and to the glory of Jesus? Lord, would you take our hearts and would you keep them? Would you seal them with rest and grace?